What a spiritual conviction of the judgment is, we are naturally led to determine from what has been said already under the former head of a spiritual understanding. The conviction of the judgment arises from the illumination of the understanding. The passing of a right judgment on things depends on having a right apprehension or idea of things, and therefore it follows that a spiritual conviction of the truth of the great things of the gospel is such a conviction as arises from having a spiritual view or apprehension of those things in the mind. And this, is, and this is also evident from the scripture, which often represents that a saving belief of the reality and divinity of the things proposed and exhibited to us in the gospel is from the spirit of God's enlightening the mind and causing it to have right apprehensions of the nature of those things, and so as it were unveiling things or revealing them and enabling the mind to view them and see them as they are. Luke 10, 21 and 22. I thank thee, O Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that thou hast hid these things from the wise and prudent, and hast revealed them unto babes. Even so, Father, for so it seemed good in thy sight. All things are delivered unto me of my Father, and no man knoweth who the Son is but the Father, and who the Father is but the Son, and he to whom the Son will reveal him. John 6:40. And this is the will of him that sent me, that every one which seeth the Son and believeth on him may have everlasting life, where it is plain that true faith arises from a spiritual side of Christ. In John 17:6-8, I have manifested thy name unto the men which thou gavest me out of the world. Now they have known that all things whatsoever thou hast given me are of thee, for I have given unto them the words which thou gavest me, and they have received them, and have known surely that I came out from thee, and they have believed that thou didst send me. Christ manifesting God's name to the disciples, or giving them a true apprehension in view of divine things, was that whereby they knew that Christ's doctrine was of God, and that Christ himself was of him, and was sent by him. Matthew 16, verses 16 and 17. Simon Peter said, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered and said unto him, Blessed art thou, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood hath not revealed it unto thee, but my Father which is in heaven. 1 John 5:10. He that believeth on the Son of God hath a witness in himself. Galatians 1, 14-16 Being more exceedingly zealous of the tradition of my fathers. But when it pleased God, who separated me from my mother's womb, and called me by his grace to reveal his Son in me, that I might preach him among the heathen, immediately I conferred not with flesh and blood. If it be so that that is a spiritual conviction of the divinity and reality of the things exhibited in the gospel, which arises from a spiritual understanding of them, I have shown already what that is, a sense and taste of the divine, supreme, and holy excellency and beauty of those things, so that then is a mind spiritually convinced of the divinity and truth of the great things of the gospel, when that conviction arises either directly or remotely from such a sense or view of their divine excellency and glory, as is there exhibited. This clearly follows from things that have already been said. And for this the scripture is very plain and express. 2 Corinthians 4, 3-6
But if our gospel be hid, it is hid to them that are lost, in whom the God of this world hath blinded their minds, of them that believe not, lest the light of the glorious gospel of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine unto them. For we preach not ourselves, but Christ Jesus the Lord, and ourselves your servants for Jesus' sake. For God, who commanded the light to shine out of darkness, has shined in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ, together with the last verse of the foregoing chapter which introduces this. But we all with open face, beholding us in a glass, the glory of the Lord, are changed into the same image, from glory to glory, even as by the Spirit of the Lord. Nothing can be more evident than that a saving belief of the gospel is here spoken of by the apostle as arising from the mind's being enlightened to behold the divine glory of the things it exhibits. The Religious Affections Gracious affections are attended with evangelical humiliation. Evangelical humiliation is a sense that a Christian has of his own utter insufficiency, despicableness, and odiousness with an answerable frame of heart. There is a distinction to be made between a legal and evangelical humiliation. The former is what men may be the subjects of, while they are yet in the state of nature and have no gracious affections. The latter is peculiar to true saints. The former is from the common influence of the Spirit of God, assisting natural principles and especially natural conscience. The latter is from the special influences of the Spirit of God, implanting and exercising supernatural and divine principles. The former is from the minds being assisted to a greater sense of the things of religion as to their natural properties and qualities, and particularly of the natural perfections of God, such as His greatness and terrible majesty, which were manifested to the congregation of Israel and given the law at Mount Sinai. The latter is from the sense of the transcendent beauty of divine things and their moral qualities. In the former, a sense of the awful greatness and natural perfections of God and of the strictness of his law convinces men that they are exceeding sinful and guilty and exposed to the wrath of God, as it will convince wicked men and devils at the day of judgment. But they do not see their own odiousness on account of sin. They do not see the hateful nature of sin. A sense of this is given in evangelical humiliation by a discovery of the beauty of God's holiness and moral perfection. In a legal humiliation, men are made sensible that they are little and nothing before the great and terrible God, and that they are undone and wholly insufficient to help themselves, as wicked men will be at the day of judgment. But they have not an answerable frame of heart, consisting in a disposition to abase themselves and exalt God alone. This disposition is given only in evangelical humiliation by overcoming the heart and changing its inclination by a discovery of God's holy beauty. In a legal humiliation, the conscience is convinced, as the consciences of all will be most perfectly at the day of judgment. But because there is no spiritual understanding, the will is not bowed, nor the inclination altered. This is done only in evangelical humiliation. In legal humiliation, men are brought to despair of helping themselves. In evangelical, they are brought voluntarily to deny and renounce themselves. 
In the former, they are subdued and forced to the ground. In the latter, they are brought sweetly to yield and freely, and with delight to prostrate themselves at the feet of God. Legal humiliation has in it no spiritual good, nothing of the nature of true virtue, whereas evangelical humiliation is that wherein the excellent beauty of Christian grace does very much consist. Legal humiliation is useful as a means in order to evangelical, as a common knowledge of the things of religion is a means requisite in order to spiritual knowledge. Men may be legally humbled and have no humility." as the wicked at the day of judgment will be thoroughly convinced that they have no righteousness, but are altogether sinful, exceedingly guilty, and justly exposed to eternal damnation, and be fully sensible of their own helplessness without the least mortification of the pride of their own hearts. But the essence of evangelical humiliation consists in such a humility as becomes a creature in itself exceeding sinful, under a disposition of grace." It is a man's mean esteem of himself as in himself nothing and altogether contemptible and odious, attended with a mortification of a disposition to exalt himself and a free renunciation of his own glory. This is a great and most essential thing in true religion. The whole frame of the gospel and everything appertaining to the new covenant in all God's dispensations towards fallen man are calculated to bring to pass this effect in the hearts of men. They that are destitute of this have no true religion, whatever profession they may make, and how high soever their religious affections may be. Habakkuk 2.4 Behold, his soul which is lifted up is not upright in him, but the just shall live by his faith. He shall live by his faith on God's righteousness and grace, and not by his own goodness and excellency. God has abundantly manifested in his word that this is what he has a peculiar respect to in his saints, and that nothing is acceptable to him without it. Psalm 34.18 The Lord is nigh unto them that are of a broken heart, and save as such as be of a contrite spirit. Psalm 51.17 The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart, O God, thou wilt not despise. Psalm 138.6 Though the Lord be high, yet hath he respect unto the lowly. Proverbs 3.34 He giveth grace unto the lowly. Isaiah 57.15 Thus saith the high and lofty one that inhabiteth eternity, whose name is Holy. I dwell in the high and holy place with him also that is of a contrite and humble spirit, to revive the spirit of the humble, and to revive the heart of the contrite ones. Isaiah 66.1 and 2 Thus saith the Lord, The heaven is my throne, and the earth is my footstool. But to this man will I look, even to him that is poor and of a contrite spirit, and trembleth at my word. Micah 6.8 He has showed thee, O man, what is good, and what doth the Lord require of thee, but to do justly, and to love mercy, and to walk humbly with thy God. Matthew 5.3 Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven.
Matthew 18, 3 and 4. Verily I say unto you, Except ye be converted, and become as little children, ye shall not enter into the kingdom of heaven. Whosoever therefore shall humble himself as this little child, the same is greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Mark 10.15 Verily I say unto you, Whosoever shall not receive the kingdom of God as a little child, he shall not enter therein. The centurion spoken of in Luke 7 acknowledged that he was not worthy that Christ should enter under his roof, and that he was not worthy to come to him. See the manner of the woman's coming to Christ that was a sinner, Luke 7.37 and behold, a woman in the city, which was a sinner, when she knew that Jesus sat at meat in the Pharisee's house, brought in alabaster box of ointment, and stood at his feet behind him, weeping, and began to wash his feet with tears, and did wipe them with the hairs of her head. She did not think the hair of her head, which is the natural crown and glory of a woman, 1 Corinthians 11.15, too good to wipe the feet of Christ withal. Jesus most graciously accepted her and said to her, Thy faith has saved thee. Go in peace. The woman of Canaan submitted to Christ in his saying, It is not meet to take the children's bread and cast it to dogs, and did as it were own that she was worthy to be called a dog. Whereupon Christ said unto her, O woman, great is thy faith. Be it unto thee even as thou wilt. Matthew fifteen twenty six to 28 The prodigal said, I will arise and go to my father, and I will say unto him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before thee, and am no more worthy to be called thy son. Make me as one of thy hired servants. Luke 15.18 and so on. See also Luke 18.9. And he spake this parable unto certain which trusted in themselves that they were righteous and despised others. The publican, standing afar off, would not so much as lift up his eyes to heaven, but smote upon his breast, saying, God be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For every one that exalteth himself shall be abased, and he that humbleth himself shall be exalted. Matthew 28.9 And they came and held him by the feet, and worshipped him. Colossians 3.12 Put ye on, is the elect of God, humbleness of mind. Ezekiel 20.41 and 42 I will accept you with your sweet favor, when I bring you out from the people, and so on. And there shall you remember your ways and all your doings, wherein you have been defiled, and you shall loathe yourselves in your own sight for all the evils that you have committed. A new heart also will I give unto you, and I will put my spirit within you, and cause you to walk in my statutes. Then shall you remember your own evil ways and your doings that were not good, and shall loathe yourselves in your own sight for your iniquities and for your abominations. Chapter 16.63 That thou mayest remember and be confounded, and never open thy mouth any more because of thy shame, when I am pacified toward thee for all that thou hast done, saith the Lord God. Job 42.6 I abhor myself, and repent in dust and ashes.
as we would therefore make the Holy Scriptures our rule in judging of the nature of true religion, in judging of our own religious qualifications and state, it concerns us greatly to look at this humiliation as one of the most essential things pertaining to true Christianity. Calvin in his Institute says, quote, I was always exceedingly delighted with that saying of Chrysostom, The foundation of our philosophy is humility, and yet more pleased with that of Augustine, as the orator, when he asked, What is the first precept in eloquence? answered, Delivery. What is the second? Delivery. What is the third? Delivery. So if you ask me concerning the precepts of the Christian religion, I will answer first, second, and third, humility. This is a principal part of the great Christian duty of self-denial. That duty consists in two things. First, in a man's denying his worldly inclinations, and in forsaking and renouncing all worldly objects and enjoyments, and secondly, in denying his natural self-exaltation, and renouncing his own dignity and glory, and in being emptied of himself, so that he does freely and from his very heart, as it were, renounce himself, and annihilate himself. This the Christian does in evangelical humiliation, and this latter is the greatest and most difficult part of self-denial. Although they always go together, and one never truly is where the other is not, yet natural men can come much nearer to the former than the latter. Many anchorites and recluses have abandoned, though without any true mortification, the wealth and pleasures and common enjoyments of righteousness. They never denied themselves for Christ, but only sold one lust to feed another, sold a beastly lust to pamper a devilish one, and so were never the better, but their latter end was worse than their beginning. They turned out one black devil to let in seven white ones that were worse than the first, though of a fairer countenance. It is inexpressible and almost inconceivable how strong a self-righteous, self-exalting disposition is naturally in man, and what he will not do and suffer to feed and gratify it, and what lengths have been gone in a seeming self-denial in other respects by Essenes and Pharisees among the Jews, and by Papists, many sects of heretics and enthusiasts among professing Christians, and by many Mahometans and Pythagorean philosophers and other among the heathen, and all to do sacrifice to this Moloch of spiritual pride or self-righteousness, and that they may have something wherein to exalt themselves before God and above their fellow creatures. That humiliation which has been spoken of is what all the most glorious hypocrites who make the most splendid show of mortification to the world and high religious affection do grossly fail in. Were it not that this is so much insisted on in Scripture as a most essential thing in true grace, one would be tempted to think that many of the heathen philosophers were truly gracious, and him was so bright in appearance of many virtues, and also great illuminations and inward fervors and elevations of mind, as though they were truly the subjects of divine elapses and heavenly communications. Theophilus Gale, in his Court of the Gentiles in 1672, writes, quote, Albeit the Pythagoreans were thus famous for Judaic mysterious wisdom, and many moral as well as natural accomplishments, 
yet were they not exempted from boasting and pride, which was indeed a vice most epidemic, and as it were congenial among all the philosophers, but in a more particular manner among the Pythagoreans who abounded in the sense and commendation of their own excellencies. Thus indeed does proud nature delight to walk in the sparks of its own fire. And although many of these old philosophers could, by the strength of their own lights and hearts, together with some common elevations of spirit, peradventure from a more than ordinary, though not special and saving assistance of the spirit, abandon many grosser vices, yet they were all deeply immersed in that miserable cursed abyss of spiritual pride, so that all their natural and moral and philosophic attainments did feed, nourish, strengthen, and render most inveterate this hell-bred pest of their hearts. Yea, those of them that seem most modest is the academics who professed they knew nothing, and the cynics who greatly decried, both in words and habits, the pride of others, yet even they abounded in the most notorious and visible pride. So co-natural and morally essential to corrupt nature is this envenomed root, fountain and plague of spiritual pride, especially where there is any natural, moral, or philosophic excellence to feed the same, whence Augustine rightly judged all these philosophic virtues to be but splendid sins." It is true that many hypocrites make great pretenses to humility as well as other graces, and very often there is nothing whatsoever which they make a higher profession of. They endeavor to make a great show of humility in speech and behavior, but they commonly make bungling work of it, though glorious work in their own eyes. They cannot find out what a humble speech and behavior is, or how to speak and act so that there may indeed be a savor of Christian humility in what they say and do. That sweet, humble air and mien is beyond their art, being not led by the Spirit, or naturally guided to a behavior becoming holy humility by the vigor of a lowly spirit within them. And therefore they have no other way, many of them, but only to be much in declaring that they be humble, and telling how they were humbled to the dust at such and such times, and abounding in very bad expressions which they use about themselves, such as, I am the least of all saints, I am a poor, vile creature, I am not worthy of the least mercy, or that God should look upon me, oh, I have a dreadful, wicked heart, my heart is worse than the devil, oh, this cursed heart of mine, and so on. Such expressions are very often used not with a heart that is broken, not with spiritual mourning, not with the tears of her that washed Jesus' feet, not as remembering and being confounded and never opening their mouth more because of their shame when God is pacified, as the expression is, Ezekiel 16.63, but with a light air, with smiles in the countenance, or with a pharisaical affectation. And we must believe that they are thus humble, and see themselves so vile upon the credit of their sane soul, for there is nothing appears in them of any savor of humility in the manner of their deportment and deeds that they do. There are many that are full of expressions of their own vileness, who yet expect to be looked upon as eminent in bright saints by others, as their due. And it is dangerous for any so much as to hint the contrary, or to carry it towards them any otherwise, and if we looked upon them as some of the chief of Christians.
There are many that are much in exclaiming against their wicked hearts and their great shortcomings and unprofitableness, and speaking as though they looked on themselves as the meanest of the saints, who yet if a minister should seriously tell them the same things in private, and should signify that he feared they were very low and weak Christians, and thought they had reason solemnly to consider of their great barrenness and unprofitableness, and folly so much short of many others, it would be more than they could digest. They would think themselves highly injured, and there would be a danger of a rooted prejudice in them against such a minister. There are some that are abundant in talking against legal doctrines, legal preaching, and a legal spirit, who do but little understand the things they talk against. Illegal spirit is a more subtle thing than they imagine. It is too subtle for them. It lurks and operates and prevails in their hearts, and they are most notoriously guilty of it, at the same time when they are unveiling against it. So far as a man is not emptied of himself and of his own righteousness and goodness, in whatever form or shape, so far is he of a legal spirit. A spirit of pride of man's own righteousness, morality, holiness, affection, experience, faith, humiliation, or any goodness whatsoever, is a legal spirit. It was no pride in Adam before the fall to be of a legal spirit because of his circumstances. He might seek acceptance by his own righteousness. But a legal spirit in a fallen sinful creature can be nothing else but spiritual pride. And reciprocally, a spiritually proud person has a legal spirit. There is, there is no man living that is lifted up with the conceit of his own experiences and discoveries, and upon the account of them glisters in his own eyes, but what trusts in his own experiences, and makes a righteousness of them, however he may use humble terms and speak of his experiences as of the great things God has done for him. And it may be calls upon others to glorify God for them. Yet he that is proud of his experiences arrogates something to himself, as though his experiences were some dignity of his. And if he looks on them as his own dignity, he necessarily thinks that God looks on them so too. For he necessarily thinks his own opinion of them to be true, and consequently judges that God looks on them as he does, and so unavoidably imagines that God looks on his experiences as a dignity in him, as he looks on them himself, and that he glisters as much in God's eyes as he does in his own. And thus he trusts in what is inherent in him, to make him shine in God's sight, and recommend him to God. And with this encouragement he goes before God in prayer, and this makes him expect much from God, and this makes him think that Christ loves him, and that he is willing to clothe him with his righteousness, because he supposes that he is taken with his experiences and grace. And this is a high degree of living on his own righteousness, and such persons are on the high road to hell. Poor deluded wretches! who think they look so glistering in God's eyes, when there are a smoke in his nose, and are many of them more odious to him than the most impure beast in Sodom that makes no pretense to religion. To do as these do is to live upon experiences according to the true notion of it, and not to do as those who only make use of spiritual experiences as evidence of a state of grace, and in that way receive hope and comfort from them. 
There is a sort of men who indeed abundantly cry down works and cry of faith in opposition to works, and set up themselves very much as evangelical persons in opposition to those that are of a legal spirit, and make a fair show of advancing Christ in the gospel in the way of free grace, who are indeed some of the greatest enemies to the gospel way of free grace, and the most dangerous opposers of pure, humble Christianity. There is a pretended great humiliation in being dead to the law and emptied of self, which is one of the biggest and most elated things in the world. Some there are who have made great profession of experience of the thorough work of the law on their hearts, and of being brought fully off from works, whose conversion has savored most of the self-righteous spirit of any that ever I had opportunity to observe. And some who think themselves quite emptied of themselves, and are confident that they are abased in the dust, are full as they can hold with the glory of their own humility, and lifted up to heaven with a high opinion of their own abasement. Their humility is a swelling, self-conceited, confident, showy, noisy, assuming humility. It seems to be the nature of spiritual pride to make men conceited and ostentatious of their humility. This appears in that firstborn of pride among the children of men that would be called his holiness. Even the man of sin that exalts himself above all that is called God or is worshipped. He styles himself servant of servants. And to make a show of humility washes the feet of a number of poor men at his inauguration. For persons to be truly emptied of themselves, and to be poor in spirit and broken in heart, is quite another thing, and has other effects than many imagine. It is astonishing how greatly many are deceived about themselves as to this matter, imagining themselves most humble when they are most proud, and their behavior is really the most haughty. The deceitfulness of the heart of man appears in no one thing so much as this of spiritual pride and self-righteousness. The subtlety of Satan appears in his height and his managing of persons with respect to this sin. And perhaps one reason may be that here he has most experience. He knows the way of its coming in. He is acquainted with the secret springs of it. It was his own sin. Experience gives vast advantage in leading souls, either in good or evil. But though spiritual pride be so subtle and secret and iniquity, and commonly appears under a pretext of great humility, yet there are two things by which it may, perhaps universally and surely, be discovered and distinguished. The first thing is this. He that is under the prevalence of this distemper is apt to think highly of his attainments in religion as comparing himself with others. It is natural for him to fall into that thought of himself that he is an eminent saint, that he is very high amongst the saints and has distinguishingly good and great experiences. That is the secret language of his heart. Luke 18.11 God, I thank thee that I am not as other men and Isaiah 65.5, I am holier than thou. Hence such are apt to put themselves forward among God's people, and as it were to take a high seat among them, as if there was no doubt of it, but it belonged to them. They, as it were, naturally take the highest room which Christ 
condemns Luke 14.7. This they do by being forward to take upon them the place and business of the chief, to guide, teach, direct, and manage. They are confident that they are guides of the blind, a light of them which are in darkness, instructors of the foolish, teachers of babes. Romans 2:19 and 20 It is natural for them to take it for granted that it belongs to them to do the part of dictators and masters and matters of religion. And so they implicitly affect to be called of men, rabbi which is by interpretation master, as the Pharisees did Matthew 23, 6 and 7, i.e., they are yet apt to expect that others should regard them and yield to them as masters in matters of religion. Thomas Shepard says, There be two things wherein it appears that a man has only common gifts and no inward principle. Number one, these gifts ever puff up and make a man something in his own eyes, as the Corinthian knowledge did. And many a private man thinks himself fit to be a minister, end quote. Shepherd's Parable of the Ten Virgins, page 287. But he whose heart is under the power of Christian humility is of a contrary disposition. If the scriptures are at all to be relied on, such an one is apt to think his attainments in religion to be comparatively mean, and to esteem himself low among the saints, and one of the least of them. There are some persons that naturally think highly of their experiences, and they do often themselves speak of their experiences as very great and extraordinary. They freely speak of the great things they have met with. This may be spoken and meant in a good sense. In one sense, every degree of saving mercy is a great thing. It is indeed a thing great, yea, infinitely great, for God to bestow the least crumb of children's bread on such dogs as we ourselves are. And the more humble a person is that hopes that God has bestowed such mercy on him, the more apt will he be to call it a great thing that he has met with in this sense. But if by great things which they have experienced, they mean comparatively great spiritual experiences, or great compared with other experiences, or beyond what is ordinary, which is evidently oftentimes the case, then for a person to say, I have met with great things, is the very same thing as to say, I am an eminent saint, and have more grace than ordinary. For to have great experiences, if the experiences be true and worth the telling of, is the same thing as to have great grace. There is no true experience but the exercise of grace, and exactly according to the degree of true experience is the degree of grace and holiness. The persons that talk thus about their experiences, when they give an account of them, expect that others should admire them. Indeed, they do not call it boasting to talk after this manner about their experiences, nor do they look upon it as any sign of pride, because they say they know it was not they that did it, it was free grace. They are things that God has done for them. They would acknowledge the great mercy God has shown them, and not make light of it. 
But so it was with the Pharisees that Christ tells us of. Luke 18 He in words gave God the glory of making him to differ from other men. God, I thank thee, says he, that I am not as other men. Calvin in his institute says, speaking of this Pharisee, in his public confession, he acknowledges that the righteousness that he has is a gift of God, but because he trusts that he is righteous, he goes away out of the presence of God unaccepted and odious, end quote. Their verbally ascribing it to the grace of God that they are holier than other saints does not hinder their forwardness to think so highly of their holiness as a sure evidence of the pride and vanity of their minds. If they were under the influence of a humble spirit, their attainments in religion would not be so apt to shine in their own eyes, nor would they so much admire their own beauty. The Christians that are really the most eminent saints and therefore have the most excellent experiences and are the greatest in the kingdom of heaven humble themselves as a little child. Matthew 18.4 Because they look on themselves as but little children in grace and their attainments to be but the attainments of babes in Christ and are astonished at and ashamed of the low degrees of their love and their thankfulness and their little knowledge of God. Moses, when he had been conversant with God in the mount, and his face shone so bright in the eyes of others as to dazzle their eyes, wist not that his face shone. There are some persons that go by the name of high professors, and some alone themselves to be high professors, but eminently humble saints that will shine brightest in heaven are not at all to profess high. I do not believe there is an eminent saint in the world that is a high professor. Such will be much more likely to profess themselves to be least of all saints and to think that every saint's attainments and experiences are higher than his. Luther, as his words are cited by Rutherford in his display of the spiritual Antichrist, says thus, quote, So is the life of a Christian, that he that has begun seems to himself to have nothing, but strives and presses forward that he might apprehend. Whence Paul says, I count not myself to have apprehended. For indeed nothing is more pernicious to a believer than that presumption that he has already apprehended and has no further need of seeking. Hence also many fall back and pine away in spiritual security and slothfulness. So Bernard says, To stand still in God's way is to go back. Wherefore this remains to him that has begun to be a Christian to think that he is not yet a Christian, but to seek that he may be a Christian, that he may glory with Paul. I am not, but I desire to be. A Christian not yet finished, but only in his beginnings. Therefore he is not a Christian that is a Christian, that is, he that thinks himself a finished Christian, and is not sensible how he falls short. We reach after heaven, but we are not in heaven. Woe to him that is wholly renewed, that is, that thinks himself to be so. That man, without doubt, has never so much as begun to be renewed. 
nor did he ever taste what it is to be a Christian. End quote. Such is the nature of grace and of true spiritual light that they naturally dispose the saints in the present state to look upon their grace and goodness little and their deformity great. And they that have the most grace and spiritual light of any in this world have most of this disposition, as will appear most clear and evident to any one that soberly and thoroughly weighs the nature and reason of things and considers the things following. The grace and holiness is worthy to be called little, that is little in comparison of what it ought to be. And little it seems to one that is truly gracious, for such an one has his eye upon the rule of his duty. A conformity to that is what he aims at. It is what his soul struggles and reaches after. And it is by that that he estimates and judges of what he does and what he has. To a gracious soul, and especially to one eminently gracious, that holiness appears little, which is little of what it should be, little of what he sees infinite reason for and obligation to. If his holiness appears to him to be at a vast distance from this, it naturally appears despicable in his eyes, and not worthy to be mentioned as any beauty or amiableness in him. For the like reason, as a hungry man naturally accounts that which is set before him but a little food, a small matter not worth mentioning, that is nothing in comparison of his appetite. Or as a child of a great prince, that is jealous for the honor of his father, and beholds the respect which men show him, naturally looks on that honor and respect very little and not worthy to be regarded, which is nothing in comparison of that which the dignity of his father requires. But that is the nature of true grace and spiritual light, that it opens to a person's view the infinite reason there is that he should be holy in a high degree. And the more grace he has, and the more this is open to view, the greater sense he has of the infinite excellency and glory of the divine being and of the infinite dignity of the person of Christ, and the boundless length and breadth and depth and height of the love of Christ to sinners. This Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. SWRB makes thousands of classic Reformation resources available, free and for sale, in audio, video, and printed formats. Our many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing thousands of classic and contemporary Puritan and Reform books, tapes, and videos at great discounts, is on the web at www.swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at 780 780- Four five zero thirty seven thirty by fax at seven eight zero four six eight ten ninety six or by mail at forty seven ten thirty seven A Avenue Edmonton that's E D M O N T O N Alberta abbreviated capital A capital B Canada T six L three T five you may also request a free printed catalog. 
and remember that John Calvin, in defending the Reformation's regulative principle of worship, or what is sometimes called the scriptural law of worship, commenting on the words of God, which I commanded them not, neither came into my heart, from his commentary on Jeremiah 7.31, writes, God here cuts off from men every occasion for making evasions, since he condemns by this one phrase, I have not commanded them, whatever the Jews devised. There is then no other argument needed to condemn superstitions than that they are not commanded by God. For when men allow themselves to worship God according to their own fancies, and attend not to his commands, they pervert true religion. And if this principle was adopted by the Papists, all those fictitious modes of worship in which they absurdly exercise themselves would fall to the ground. It is indeed a horrible thing for the Papists to seek to discharge their duties towards God by performing their own superstitions. There is an immense number of them, as it is well known, and as it manifestly appears. Were they to admit this principle, that we cannot rightly worship God except by obeying his word, they would be delivered from their deep abyss of error. The prophet's words, then, are very important. When he says that God had commanded no such thing, and that it never came to his mind, as though he had said that men assume too much wisdom when they devise what he never required, nay, what he never knew.